Dear listeners, welcome to another episode of The Learning Curve with me, Kara Kandel, and the fabulous Gerard Robinson, who I have to say I recently got to see live in person, which is just absolutely amazing to see so many people live and in person, but especially you, my good friend Gerard. How are you doing today? Doing well. It was good to finally see you not on a screen, and I barely see you there, but it was good to <laughs> break true. bread and talk shop you and know all that kind I of good stuff. You know what I look like now. You know what I look like because probably the last time we saw each other in person before this was years and years ago. So, you know, how the pandemic has aged me. But, Gerard, we're going to Don't laugh. It's not funny. <laughs> Listen, we are coming up on Thanksgiving, obviously. This is, we are recording this. We're about to sit down. Our listeners maybe can listen to a little learning curve with their turkey this week. I just picked up my turkey and I was thinking of you on the way home because knowing that you've changed your diet very recently, I'm wondering like what's on the Robinson table this year? Is it a tofurkey or is it like something that would utterly offend my father's sensibilities? I would have to say, but that I would probably eat. What's your specialty? So for me, I'm going to have plant-based sausage. And so it would totally offend your father's taste buds Totally, for my wife and the girls. So last year I made gumbo and this year I was going to make kubia, which is a uh, fish dish. And they all said, nope, we want something that you've only made for us once in our life. And guess what that is? Drum roll, fried chicken. Oh, I was going to say vegetarian sausage. No, fried chicken. No, 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 no. They actually eat uh, turkey and chicken stuff, but they've only had fried chicken, at least made in this house once. And so I'm going to make it for them along with some other goodies. So while that may be a normal meal in many households across America, it is one that we don't often have. They love chicken, but it's often baked. So I'm going to fry it. You know, Jordan, I have to say, I rarely eat fried chicken, although it is delicious. Absolutely scared to death of trying to prepare it. I've never eaten. I disclosed this to a friend the other day who uh, we were uh, looking at a menu. Never had chicken wings. Just something that kind of wow. scares me. Wow. Okay. I know. Is that weird? Like I made it all through college in the Midwest without a single chicken wing. Who knows how that happened, but it did. So uh, it's it, interesting. Well, I'm glad to see that you can sort of like mix up the, the Thanksgiving table. I'm pretty excited. I'm going to be hosting a very, very, very teensy beansy group of family friends this year. Nothing big at the Kendall household. I will be attempting to make a turkey for said friends. My father, on the other hand, you know, speaking of offending his sensibilities, I should share with our listeners that this is a man who is so averse to a plant-based diet. For years and years, I've been asking him to please get on board. Even just like, you know, you can still eat meat and be generally plant-based. The man, it's just not been his DNA. But he is known for making a turducken, Gerard. Have you ever had turducken? I'm assuming no. No. Yeah. A turkey stuffed with like a duck, stuffed with like a chicken. 
Wow. It's an actual thing. It's disgusting. Love you, Dad. It's disgusting. Like just, I don't know, to all of our <laughs> listeners out there, if you've ever had a good a good turducken, let me know. But it is actually a thing. I will not be with my parents this Thanksgiving. We will be Zooming, but um, eager to know what's going to be on the table there. So I know that so many of us this week are finding a little bit of time to relax, enjoy family in the middle of what is certain to be a very hectic season. So wishing everybody just a wonderful, relaxing holiday. And hopefully this one better than last year when so many of us so saw so few of us. But, you know, we are here, Gerard, to discuss what's going on in education this week. Now, you and I, I think we can say that we were at the National Summit on Education, hosted by yep. Excel and Ed, last week. It was, I have to say, I give props to, as our listeners know, Excel and Ed is my is uh, something that I do during the day, a job that I love very much. And I think it was just a really wonderful display of thought leadership on so many levels, some really great speakers. And one of the things, one of the panels that we, one of the things we confronted on one of our strategy sessions at the National Summit on Education was accountability, was accountability and testing and what the heck is going on. And that relates to my story of the week, Gerard, which is from the 74 by Linda Jacobson, And the title is, States Look to Ed Department for Guidance on Restarting Testing and Accountability After Two Years of Pandemic-Related Interruptions. So we've talked about testing on the show. We've talked about accountability. We haven't talked a whole heck of a lot about what's going to happen now that most schools are reopened and most kids are back to some new version of normal. And what this article is discussing is the fact that while most schools are testing, and many did last year too, many schools and districts tested last year, we know that by and large, um, there's just two years of lost test score data. And in the Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education, in the first year, obviously in 2020, some waivers from testing and accountability from ESSA were the Every Student Succeeds Act, which is the accountability system under which states are accountable under federal law. So meaning that's how they get their Title I dollars. But we know that states were granted waivers. Now, this education department, Secretary Cordona, has sent a pretty strong signal that tests are going to happen and we're, we're not going to be granting a lot more waivers. So that leaves a question in everybody's mind. We can get the test and we can get results of the test, but we don't know how to hold schools and districts accountable for growth if we don't have, if we're missing two years of data, because we need to see what's happening year over year. And as we also know, to further complicate issues, Gerard, lots of kids are missing. So just a whole host of issues that states are facing right now and not a lot of answers. States are really waiting to find out what is going to happen next. So be interesting to watch. Testing season is going to be on us before we know it. And certainly we need to get back to a norm where accountability systems, the, the thing that they do best is they shine a light on pockets of underperformance. So I'm really curious, Jared, as a former commissioner, as a former secretary of education, what kind of accountability system, what kind of guidance would you like to see from the feds going forward on this issue? I appreciate the fact that the feds for a couple of years said we're going to hold harmless. I think that was the right decision. I do understand why the secretary says, listen, we've got to do something and we have to do it kind of smartly. The benefit that he has today that let's say a decade ago, we did not. 
is you have a number of think tanks, a number of nonprofit organizations and universities at Research One Schools and also at HBCUs who have professors who wake up and go to sleep every night thinking about assessment. And if you troll the internet, you'll see some of those professors aren't waiting for peer-reviewed journals to give them the okay to publish their work. They're actually putting out their ideas on how to account for what tests could have been if all students were uh, tested at the same time. And they've come up with different economic, social, and academic-based models for assessment. So I'm really, I really can't weigh into this one because testing someone right now in the pandemic is just radically different. But I would say look to scholars at schools who are starting to put this out. So that's part one. Part two, at the state level, they have a lot of money. One of the things oh, you and I had a chance so to, to do while we were there were talk to people who are at the school level and at the state level. And they were saying across the board, we have so much money, we don't know what to do. And I can tell you in American education, that's not usually a sentence that you'll hear. It's usually we don't have enough money and then something mm -hmm. else will follow. So with all of this money, there are people, again, you can invest in under the guise of COVID relief to make sure we stay in line with uh, the parameters of the funding. There are people out there who've really, really thought about this. And I would say you have a number of retired teachers and principals who would be equally interested. So I'd say use local talent. I love it. Also a great opportunity with this relief money to rethink assessment. I mean, it's like one of the primary things that school districts and school teachers and parents across the country love to hate, as important as accountability systems are. But this is, I think, a really grand opportunity to figure out how do we get more innovative in our assessments? Uh, a close friend of mine likes to say, fewer, better assessments, right? So that we can still have those sort of summative data that, as I say, help us understand what's going on under the hood in school districts to make school make sure that all children are being served without sort of having to continue to adhere to this testing regimen that causes anxiety and, quite frankly, sometimes perverse incentives for teachers to do things like teach to the test, which, of, of course, isn't what we wanted in the first place. So I would be really excited to see if some of those local stakeholders that you mentioned can offer up ideas for not only how we hold schools accountable, but how we do so using different more innovative assessments designed for the future. So I know you've got a story this week, I think, about a state, Utah, that is actually doing some really cool stuff in terms of online learning, innovative assessments, all of the other things. What are you thinking about in that great state? Well, speaking of Utah, I had a chance, in addition to speaking to ESA leaders at the session you held, I also had an opportunity to moderate a panel focused on assessments, opportunity, and personalized learning. And one of the three speakers was Dr. Carrie Kampf, who's the director of K-12 virtual learning for the Utah Department of Education. As many of you know, Julie Young has been a guest on our show. She was also on my panel, but those two have partnered uh, so they can actually work to use technology as a way of trying to close the learning gap. And I should also say we had Denise Fort, who is the interim CEO at Education Trust on the panel. So my story is all about Utah and data, but when you read what Margie Cortez had to say, she put in quotes, sobering and concerning. And that's actually a phrase that was mentioned by Representative Lowry Snow, who's a Republican from Santa Clara and co-chair of the Utah Legislature's Education Interim Committee. So Utah is a high-performing state. Uh, they have a lot of 
great things, but they also have a number of socioeconomic challenges in the state. Well, when you talk about the pandemic, it really impacted people across the board. Now, Utah was a state where a number of students were in person. And so the state said, let's just assess exactly where we are and then figure out who took tests, who did not, and what happened. Well, when the representative said sobering and concerning, she was really clear. So for example, amongst high school juniors, 7% fewer took the SAT college exam in 2021 compared to 2019. And if you look at the state average composite score, it declined by 0.29 points, which is comparable to about one month of lost instruction. So then we talk about the Utah Aspire Plus test, and this is administered to students in grades 9 and 10. It had the sharpest decline in participation, with 10% fewer students taking the test in 2021 compared to 2029. But that's not really the horrible outcomes. Listen to this, Kara. Mathematics performance dropped 46% in grade oh, 10 and boy. 37% in grade 9. English language arts performance worsened by 14% in both grades. And so in the state, they have something called RISE assessments, and that's short for readiness, improvement, success, empowerment. And they're administered to students in grades 3 to 8. They also unfortunately saw a sharp decline with 57% decline in sixth grade math and a 45% drop in fifth grade math. So the state is trying to figure out, well, now that we know this is the case, what do we do? Well, to take things a step further, the Utah Board of Education and the National Center for the Improvement of Educational Assessment, they said, well, guess what, folks? It's likely that the figures you're discussing underestimates the true pandemic effect because it's only based upon students who took the test in 2020-2021. So when we're speaking about how to look at learning loss, we have to find a new way of trying to assess it. So there is a professor at Harvard University named Andrew Hole, and he said, listen, let's try to apply my method to the RISE test and to Utah Aspire. So according to Ho, he suggested two metrics. One should include, quote, a fair trend adjustment. And this is to account for changes in the testing population. And the second is an equity check. And the goal here is an attempt to estimate to the best way possible, a best case academic performance scenario for students who did not take the 2021 test. Because he believes by doing so, you're gonna provide uh, a gauge for the impact of missing students on the overall academic outcomes. And so as the report goes, uh, so really the story goes further, it just says that the state's got to really think differently about how to do things. So there are three takeaways for me. Number one, Hull's assessment is one example that I referenced in response to you without mentioning his name of looking at university-based scholars who are trying to provide one way of working with this. Number two, they also identify that even though students in Utah, for the most part, were in school more often than not, a number of the students who filled out the survey identified that they sometimes were quarantined and had their education interrupted. And we dig further into the story. It said that the highest achievement occurred among students who were in person, but also had fewer interruptions, therefore being in play in school made a difference. The third is, while no one is saying this in the article, and Cortez definitely is not, I'm really wondering, are we trying to somehow say, maybe we shouldn't assess these students one more year because things are still tight. I agree 
But I want to make sure that at some point we don't use the pandemic as a reason maybe to go to year three without holding some level of accountability and some level of assessment in place. So, you know, we'll see. Last part is, you know, they did end by saying, quote, the learning acceleration necessary cannot be left to teachers and principals alone. School leaders, educators, local communities will need support and resources to sustain a necessary intervention well beyond the time the federal emergency funds run out. There's a lot of money there. The smartest thing to do is just reimagine what you would do, because I'm not sure we're going to have so much money at one time pouring into schools. And so if we're going to think about assessments and we're looking at Utah, let's just make sure that as we're moving forward with this money, we're not putting a pause too long on accountability. I couldn't agree more, Gerard. And actually, I think that there's an enormous risk. I think that there are some vested interests that would like to see accountability go away altogether. Let's just swing that pendulum right back to like the late 1970s, early 1980s with failed and failed attempt at accountability until, I mean, it wasn't really until 2001 on the heels of some states like Texas and Massachusetts and others implementing these systems, right? It wasn't until No Child Left Behind that we really had information about schools and I think that's the huge danger here. We might also have to rethink the different ways of holding schools accountable because absolutely we want to know about student performance. But in this particular moment, if schools aren't even trying, if they aren't even trying to understand or to share their data or to demonstrate that they're doing something for kids, then I think we all need to be a little bit skeptical (laughs) about what's going on and figure out how to hold schools accountable in myriad ways, both quantitative and qualitative without, of course, focusing so much on accountability that we pose additional burdens. We want to do it in a way that lifts burdens for students and teachers where tests and accountability can become a tool for future learning. So, well, I know we could talk about this forever, Gerard, because it's fascinating and it's going to be, it's going to be just great turkey day conversation. It's so many homes. I know that's everybody's going to have accountability on the mind. Gerard, we have got a very New England guest coming up after this. If any of you are, I know even those of you who live in warmer climates often, what's the song? I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. If you listen to this kind of music around the holiday season. So for those of us up here in New England, it's cold, it's dark, and we're going to be huddled around the Thanksgiving table looking for some warmth. And today's author, he's written about For example, Henry Wadsworth, Longfellow, great New England poet. Many of us know his work without knowing we even know his work. We are going to be speaking with Nicholas Basbanes coming up right after this. Learning Curve listeners, welcome back. And today we are with Nicholas Basbanes. He is the author of 10 critically acclaimed works of cultural history with a particular emphasis on various aspects of books and book culture. I just love it. A Gentle Madness, Bibliophiles, Bibliomanes, and the Eternal Passion for Books, his first book, was a finalist for the National Book Credit Circle Award for Nonfiction in 1995 and was a New York Times notable book on paper. The Everything of its 2,000-year history was one of three finalists for the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction and was named Best Book of the Year by seven major publications. In 2016, he was awarded a Public Scholar Research Fellowship by the National Endowment for the Humanities, his second NEH grant for work on Cross of Snow, A Life of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, published in 2020. 
As Christoph Irmscher wrote in the Wall Street Journal Review, it's inspired, superbly sympathetic. Longfellow is the perfect poet for our current moment. Basbanes writes about him with generosity, gentleness, and grace. Nicholas Basbanes, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Yeah, we're really happy to have you. I think especially, I mean, I sit up here in New England. My co-host does not. He gets to talk about his home state of Virginia quite a bit. But Longfellow especially feels very New England and inappropriate for this, not only this cultural moment, but this time of year. So we're really excited to have you. Now, I don't know if I can call myself a bibliophile, but boy, do I love to read. And the history of books is a fascinating topic. You have written several books about the history of books. So share for our listeners and the educators and students that we have who listen to this show, from the epic of Gilgamesh and Homer to Dante, Shakespeare, Longfellow, Emily Dickinson, and Langston Hughes, poetry might be the most influential, enduring form of written human expression. Explain that. What does that mean? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there when you talk about influential and enduring. I think, you know, enduring we begin with that. You mentioned Gilgamesh, the Sumerian epic. Well, that that is a an oral originally an, an oral tradition poem, an epic poem, which we call an epic poem. And it was composed five thousand years ago, which is at the dawn of writing. It was in existence at about two thousand BC, and we have our first recorded writing of it, and on, which have been preserved on. Uh, baked clay tablets from the Sumerian era dating to 1000 BC. That was written over a thousand years before Homer wrote the uh, Iliad and the Odyssey, which again are also poems designed to be read aloud or to be sung as songs and then re- and then recorded down, documented on a variety of uh, recording surfaces. We use paper today, but we've used all sorts of recording media. And we talk about Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad. We have the, uh, the Aeneid by Virgil. The opening line is, I sing, I sing to you of arms and the man. And we think of any number of other national epics. I mean, you talk about, I mentioned Virgil's Aeneid. You have Dante writing in the vernacular in the 14th century, the Divine Comedy. You have the Song of Roland, the Song of Roland, again, very important. 11th century France, the poem of the Cid in Spain. So uh, when you think of national poems that celebrate a national identity, it is invariably through poetry and beginning going back, as we said, thousands of years in the oral tradition. And let's just, just think, who is the national poet of England? Well, he's the dramatist, the playwright, William Shakespeare. But fundamentally, he was a poet writing uh, uh, like verse, iambic pentameter, all of his great speeches and all of the great plays are in verse. And of course, we call him the great bard of Avon. So this is the tradition from which uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow springs. He was determined to write a great American epic, drawing on distinctively, uniquely American traditions and customs. And he attempted this, and I think he succeeded in a number of instances, beginning with Evangeline and the first of his long narrative poems in 1847. He follows that with Hiawatha, and he follows that with The Courtship of Miles Standish. Each one of these a distinctively American theme, drawing in American traditions and speaking to the American people of, of their shared cultural identity. So I guess that's a long roundabout way of answering your question, but answering mm. it in the affirmative. Yeah, no, but and you're also bringing me back to my 
I don't want to say how long ago, but days, of course, as an English major and some of these works that you've listed as being, you know, songs, certainly really, if, if you've ever sat with the texts and you've sat with the text, especially in a group of other people, you realize that they, of course, lend themselves to being read aloud and one can understand and feel so much more of it. I also listening to you. And since we do have some educators who are out there in our audience, I want to put in a plug for something that my kids wonderful school does. And that is poem in your pocket day. And the ground rules are simply that you have to have a poem in your pocket and anybody can stop you at any time and ask you to read that poem. So going back to that great oral tradition. Now, I already asked you a little bit about Longfellow, but we want to talk a lot more about him. So your biography of Longfellow is considered definitive. And I think that many would say he is regarded as perhaps America's most recognizable fireside poet, of course, from New England. Talk to us a little bit about Longfellow's life. He had the tragic death of his second wife. And what is it that made him such a celebrated literary figure in our culture? Well, I think he is. Yes, he is a, 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 was easily the most celebrated. That's a, that's a very important word to use. Celebrated poet of the 19th century. He was more than a poet. He was a public figure, and I think in that regard, he goes. He transcends poetry. He was read. He was appreciated. He was beloved by every demographic and by people of all ages. Children. He wrote most accessibly and invitingly. But when you think of people, of, of lawyers, professionals, uh, President Lincoln going into the 1860s was brought to tears when he was read the building of the ship and that wonderful line in there saying, oh, sail on, oh, union, strong and great. You know, we talk about President Lincoln. We talk about in England, Queen Victoria. So Link, uh, Longfellow was an American poet, but beloved not only in the United States as a cultural figure, but throughout the world. His poems were translated and read in no fewer than 30 languages throughout the world. When he visited England in 1868, he was received by Queen Victoria, who marveled at how the servants, the domestic staff in the Windsor Castle, were hiding behind curtains to get a vantage point to see the great American poet. And she asked them later, well, you know, how do you know this poet? Well, they all knew his poetry and they all loved his poetry. And that had a lot to do with his character, who he was. He was a man of extraordinary decency. He was a very moral person. He was born in 1807. He graduated from Bowdoin College in Maine at the age of 18. He graduated at the age of 18. Wow. Uh, he was uh, fourth in his uh, class, one of his classmates. And, be and later in life, one of his great, great friends was Nathaniel Hawthorne. It was quite a class, quite a graduating class at Bowdoin, and there were other <laughs> great achievers. On his graduation day, uh, prior to graduation day, he gave an address because he, he graduated with honors, and the topic of his address was our native writers. Even at the age of 18, he was calling for the creation and the development and the evolution of a distinctively American literature. We were still in the early years of the 19th century. You know, America was still in the very early, in the infancy of developing a national literary tradition. And he was mindful of that. And he wanted from his earliest day, from the earliest stages that we have records of him, he wanted to be a writer, and this, a professional writer. And he didn't, he came from a very distinguished family. 
but he was not from a, a family of great wealth. And his father, who was a lawyer in Portland, Maine, you know, insisted you can't make a living doing this. He wanted him to be like himself, a lawyer. Uh, young Henry didn't argue with him, but he respected his father. But they reached a consensus. Well, you'll come uh, study in the in, in my law office. And meanwhile, maybe you can take some graduate studies at Harvard and you can study literature. Well, on commencement day, on his graduation day, he's 18 years old. The trustees at Bowdoin College vote to establish a professorship in modern European languages and Bellette. There were only three other colleges in the United States at that time that had such a program, Harvard, William and Mary, and the University of Virginia. They had received a bequest, and lo and behold, they recommended that young Henry Longfellow, age 18, uh, be, wow. appointed, be appointed to that position. He had already distinguished himself in translating some odes from the Latin, Horace in particular, and he had impressed everyone, and they thought he would be perfect for the job. But there was a catch. He would have to go to Europe, now he's 18 years old, 1825, at his own expense, and to learn the languages he would be expected to teach. And because he was a very decent, moral, trustworthy young man, I mean, you could consider sending your child abroad at the age of 18 in 1825 and spending what turned out to be three and a half years in Europe, traveling through multiple countries, spending time in Spain, in Italy, in Germany, in England, in France, and everywhere he goes, he not only learns these languages, and so he can come back and teach them, and he will learn six he will learn six fluently this time around, and he will do this again 10 years later before wow. he takes over a, a similar position at Harvard. He ultimately will know 12 languages, read them fluently. In his library at, at Longfellow in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there are over 10,000 books in 45 different dialects and a dozen or so languages, all of which he could read uh, fluently and speak fluently. He came back, he taught these languages at Bowdoin for seven years or so. He began to introduce to American readers. This is important because not only did he want to develop an American literary tradition, he was determined to adapt and to borrow, not to, I don't, I don't mean borrow in the sense of plagiarize or poach material, but traditions, forms of a poetic form and meter. And he learned them and he would absorb these and he was determined to absorb all of these different traditions and hope he hoped to create one that would be distinctively American. And I think to a great extent, he succeeded at that. But at the same time, and we can argue, and I do in the book, that he is arguably, I think, our first long before that phrase, this phrase enters the language, a multiculturalist because he believed, he wrote to his sisters from, from Europe, he said, the more languages a man, a man, of course, you could say man or woman, the more languages a person knows, the more he or she uh, is a man or a woman. You, uh, the more languages that you learn, the more you are a human being. And not only languages, but literatures. When he met Washington Irving in Spain, Washington Irving gave him great advice. Young man, don't just learn the languages, but learn the literatures. So this, I think this trip to Europe at the age of 18, he comes back at the age of 22, he's a full professor at Bowdoin College, and he so distinguishes himself, he is credited with introducing to American readers the works of no fewer than 25 German authors, including Goethe and Schiller. He is credited with introducing so many different Spanish writers and traditions to American readers. There were no textbooks available while he was at Bowdoin in the seven years he taught there. 
he translated his own his own books. The very first books he publishes are his own translations from these various languages as primers, so he can pass among his students. And there you can still find them in the antiquarian circles. I mean, they're very important books. So this is how he begins. You know, I, to go back when he arrived in the Bowdoin campus. And he started, he was a freshman at the age of 15 or 14 or so. He was already a published poet, even though his father discouraged him from being a, a writer. He wrote poetry. He submitted uh, these poems to various newspapers. And at the age of 13, his first poem is published in a Portland newspaper. So we start with this young man. He, and, then, and then after seven or eight years, lo and behold, he, he's eager to leave. He loves Maine. He's from Maine, but he feels after having traveled and visited all these world capitals, he wants to perform on a larger stage. And he got of the woodwork, quite literally, he is offered a, a similar position at Harvard to succeed the great George Tickner and the, the Smith professorship. And now he is required to go to Europe again and to learn more languages, quite specifically, to become more proficient in the Germany, in the German. He travels and he takes with him his young wife, his first wife, Mary Storer Potter Longfellow, a young, lovely woman, a neighbor of his in Maine. And tragically, she dies. And we, we really, because they are very reticent people, we know very little about her pregnancy, whether even she was pregnant when they set sail. But six months after they arrived in Europe, she had a miscarriage and she died rather horribly 54 or so days later. And Henry was totally distraught. And yet he soldiered on. He continued his work, hoping to try to make a long story short here. But he's traveling to take a break before returning to teach at Harvard. He meets this young woman. In, in Switzerland, uh, Frances Appleton Longfellow, traveling with her family. She's a Beacon Hill uh, young woman from a very, a very prominent, uh, wealthy New England family. And Henry falls for her in the biggest way uh, because she is a brilliant young woman. I and mean, she herself has been taught by magnificent private tutors. She speaks multiple languages. She translates as well with him some a poem from the German. Henry couldn't be more impressed. There's a courtship, but we call it a courtship. It was only one way. It took seven years for these two to get together. I'm, I'm, and I, I spent a good deal, did a bit of time in the book. I'm very proud of the fact that we won't probably get to, the, to this in the, the time we were talking here, but I, I, I regard this as much a biography of uh, Fanny Appleton Longfellow as much as it is of Henry. And the, we, don't, we won't have time also to get deeply into the choice of the title, Cross of Snow, but this is a tribute. He writes to her 18 years after her horrible death, after 18 years of marriage, in which, which also coincide with the 18 most productive years of his life. It was, it, it was 18 years of extraordinary productivity. They, I, I've just written, finished an essay, which I hope to be published in a major literary journal. Uh, I expect it will be, but it, I, I call it Meeting of the Minds, the intellectual partnership of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and Francis Appleton Longfellow, because she was, I, I won't say she was his collaborator, but she read everything that he wrote. She commented on it. She advised him in several instances. She even proposed poems that he wrote, one of which, uh, The Arsenal of Springfield. She was quite the, she was a, a abolitionist. She was fiercely against arms and warfare of any form. And, uh, and all of these, all of these factors uh, had a great impact on Henry. 
She died tragically in a, in a horrible way. Their life, I, I have a chapter in the book I called Camelot on the Charles. I mean, life couldn't have been any better. He is at the top of his game. Uh, all of the three narrative poems I mentioned, they're all written and published during this period. So many other of his most famous works, Paul Revere's Ride, The Building of the Ship, these all these are all written and published during these, year, these years. In July of 1861, just a few months after the outbreak of the Civil War, they have now five children, three daughters, two sons. And on a hot July day, this was a custom in these days, she is sealing, sealing uh, little snippets of golden hair from one of her daughters, her daughter Edith, Edith with golden hair. And she is attempting to seal these locks of blonde hair into small envelopes with a candle. And somehow, because only the girls were witness to this, the young daughters, uh, some, uh, some dripping wax fell on her dress, this crinoline dress, these uh, dresses which were terribly flammable. And in an instant, she burst into flames and ran shrieking to the study and, and, and Longfellow's where Henry was taking an afternoon nap and he tried furiously to put out the flames. Uh, all he had was a little throw rug He's severely burned, and she just very tragically passes away the next morning. And in an instant, you talk about an idyllic life being turned upside down. Uh, this was now the second loss of a woman that he loved dearly. He loved his first wife dearly, and now this woman with uh, his bride of 18. When he married Fanny, he wrote in his, his journal, it was a vita nova, a new life of happiness, and now all of a sudden that was gone. But he never lost uh, his faith or his courage or what he had to do. He was now a single father with young five young children. He wrote to a, a very close friend. He said, to the, out to the world, outside, outwardly, I am calm, but inwardly, I am bleeding to death. And so now he turns to other things for the short run. He turns to translation, returns to translation because he's translated many other works and becomes the first American to translate the whole of Dante into English. And if he did nothing else, if he didn't ever write a, a, a single poem of his own, his, his significance as a literary figure for that alone would elevate him to a, to a statue where we would have to take pay attention to him. I interviewed a number of people for this book, and I can't tell you, including Harold Bloom, the great Harold Bloom, the late Harold Bloom, Dean of American Critics, who felt that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's translation of Dante, in his view, was the best because of his accuracy and his fidelity to what Dante was trying to say to his readers, not just what the translator thought uh, his readers were trying to pass on to the, to the readers. Henry lives for another 22 or 23 years after the death of Fanny, but those years are so central. And on the 18th anniversary of her death, they were married for 18 years, and numbers were very important to him. One night in his, in, the, in his bedroom, he writes out this sonnet, The Cross of Snow, from which I derive the, the title of my book. And it's a tribute to his wife, and it's a classic sonnet of 14 lines. And he's contemplating two paintings, one that hangs in the second floor bedroom of his wife. It's across from his bed. And only he sees this painting. I mean, it's a very personal, private uh, painting. That's the first eight lines of the poem. And the final six lines is a contemplation of a painting known to millions of people re of a recently discovered mountain in the Colorado Rockies, which somehow displays on its side 
the figure of a cross in snow, and it's visible all year round, and it caused a sensation. So it was this contemplation of these two pictures, and when he says, in the long sleepless watches of the night, a gentle face, the face of one long dead, looks at me from the wall around its head. The night lamp casts a halo of pale light. Here in this room she died, and never soul more white, never through martyrdom of fire, was led to its repose, nor can in books be read the legend of a life more benedite. Then he switches to the mountain in the distant west. He said, there is a mountain in the distant west that sun-defying in its deep ravines displays a cross of snow upon its side. Such is the cross I wear upon my breast these 18 years through all the changing scenes and seasons, changeless since the day she died. It's just an amazing poem. When he finished, it was so personal. He folded it, put it in an envelope, left it with his per personal papers. It was discovered after his death and published posthumously. And I thought, not only is this an extraordinary, exceptional tribute to this woman who was such a partner to him, but also one of the finest sonnets ever written by an American. And I say this, just I really challenge anyone to tell me an American poet who writes a better sonnet than Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He is an absolute master of the sonnet form. Well, speaking of poems, my co-host Kara mentioned that she lives in the Boston area. I've had a chance to, to visit. And on one visit, I had an opportunity to see the Black Soldiers Monument in the city. And it was just amazing to think about what many of those formerly enslaved Africans, what some of those free men decided to do to fight against the Civil War. And speaking of that, in 1842, Longfellow wrote poems on slavery, uh, calling attention to the institution. Amongst his closest friends was the abolitionist U.S. Senator of Massachusetts, Charles Sumner, who many would know in 1856 was nearly beaten to death on the floor of the Senate because of his forceful anti-slavery speech. Would you talk to us about what teachers, students, even families should know about Longfellow's poems on slavery, his literary connection with Senator Sumner, and his friendship with New England abolitionists in general? Okay, that's a great question. And I think I'm really pleased that you asked it because I've been asked before by some people, why, how can I explain Longfellow's, and this was a, an actual question, his obtuseness with, on the matter of slavery? Because some people feel that he could have been more, more active, more active in, his, in the poetry that he wrote in his career. Like Whittier, for instance, more fiery. Well, those poems that you just mentioned, the poems on slavery, seven poems, were published in 1842. Now, this is 10 years before, 10 years before Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And he wrote about slavery as a horrific institution. And there were seven. He writes one called The Slave in the Dismal Swamp, in which a hunted Negro, that was the words that he used, on the run, infirm and lame from repeated beatings, lies crouched in the rank and tangled grass like a wild beast in the lair. He writes another one called The Slave's Dream. And the, the central image there is the driver's whip that maintains order among the oppressed. Another one he calls the quadroon girl about a young woman who's taken from her family and brought to the United States for any number of different and unspeakable purposes. And my very favorite of them all is the witnesses, which describes a sunken ship half buried in the sands in which lie skeletons in chains with shackled feet and hands. These are the bones of slaves, he writes. They gleam from the abyss, they cry from the yawning waves. We are the witnesses. 
Now, some people might have felt that those weren't powerful poems. I think they're pretty powerful poems, and he used imagery, and they were powerful enough that one of his publishers refused to include them in a collection of his works. He did stimulate discussion, and he was the first American poet to do that, the first American writer of consequence to do that. It, they were so far-reaching and influential that Whittier, his friend, another fireside poet, asks him to run for Congress on the Liberty and under the banner of the Liberty Party, which is newly formed, but it was a very, good, very clear abolitionist party. Longfellow declines. He says, I do not fly under any political banner. His feelings, his convictions were very well known. Now, you ask about Charles Sumner, literary connection. It's beyond literary connection. It was his closest, dearest friend. They were absolutely soulmates. And when, when and, and, and Sumner knew Fanny Appleton, they both lived in Beacon Hill. And so he knew the family. But And as much as he loved her and became very friendly and was as devoted to her as Henry was, he despaired when Henry, when they married, because he was losing, not losing, he thought he might be losing his closest friend. But Sumner said, Sumner writing a letter to Francis Libra, Libra said, do not expect war owes from Longfellow. That is not lo what Longfellow does. He said Longfellow speaks to the people on common ground, and he speaks for all of them and, and, and all of their convictions. You know, later he writes Paul Revere's Ride. Well, purportedly, that's about the Revolutionary War, but it's more than that. This is published on the eve of this, literally on the eve of the Civil War. South Carolina has just, has just seceded from the Union in the final six lines of that poem. He says, for born on the night wind of the past through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken, will waken, future tense, and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. He's talking about preserving the union and uh, the, the preservation of the union is so important to him. And part and parcel of that, of course, is their conviction that people Human beings are not chattel, they are not property. And I just find that those poems on slavery are really underappreciated and undervalued for what they did and for what they performed. And I'm delighted that you asked that question. You mentioned the saint uh, um, relief up on Beacon Hill. That's the 54th Massachusetts Regiment. You know, only in Boston, I mm -hmm. think, that you have had something like this happen, where you have these free blacks being encouraged to sign up and to serve and they march off on Beacon Hill. Henry was there. He was at his father-in-law's house, and he watched the uh, he watched the procession. He cheered them as they marched off to uh, to their heroic fate, and, and and proving to everyone that black people not only could fight, but they could fight honorably and decisively, and uh, with great credit. And uh, it, it was an extraordinary situation. And Henry was fully in support of that. Yeah, but Sumner was very, very, very important individual in his life, and also, of course, as we know, in the abolition cause. Not only did Longfellow write about slavery and its challenges, he also wrote poems that helped people then and now think about religious liberty, whether it was Evangeline, about a Catholic Acadian girl and her search for a lost love during the time of the expulsion of the Acadians to Louisiana. In fact, my uh, family's from Louisiana or his 1854 elegy, The Jewish Cemetery at Newport. Same, I mean, similar theme, you know, what should we as educators, as students, as families, as just people, think about these poems in the broader ideas of America and religious liberty? 
Well, think about what you just asked me. Both of these questions, again, both of these poems deal with po American situations. Evangeline is this, and, they, and this is a, 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 the first of the three long narrative poems. But think about it. It's about a Catholic woman, a woman who is now the heroine of an epic poem. This is almost unprecedented, isn't it? And and we're talking about Catholics and in in British what was you know at the time during the expulsion of the Acadians you know British North America and of course at the premise of the story is that on their wedding day this couple is is separated and he is sent off and she spends the rest of her life searching for him Henry heard about that by the way from his friend Nathaniel Hawthorne at dinner and the Hawthorne gave him the idea for that story and he ran with it. And we, we had this magnificent poem, and Longfellow did do it, by the way, in a very interesting meter, the meter of dactylic hexameters, which was the meter of the class of the, uh, the epic poems, the Greek poems, because he wanted to kind of impact this, this classical epic theme. But this, is, this was a poem, a celebration of religious freedom, but also gender. And we're talking about a, a woman who's, who, who triumphs in the end, and she's a very, she never loses her faith or, or her hope. The Jewish Cemetery at Newport is also a very interesting poem. Discovered this cemetery in Newport, Rhode Island in 1850 when he was in Newport with his family for the summer. And he went out for a walk and he records this in his diary. And he comes across, if it's still there, if you ever have a chance to get down to Newport, this, uh, this Jewish cemetery, which is established in 1657, I think it was, just uh, not the cemetery, but the synagogue, which remains the oldest standing synagogue in North America. So this, this group of, of uh, Portuguese Sephardic Jews came to Rhode Island in, in the 1650s fleeing uh, religious oppression in Europe, and they were welcome in Rhode Island because Rhode Island, as you know, was founded by Roger Williams as a haven, as a place for a people of all faiths to assemble and to live. And Henry is walking, and he sees this, walking down in, uh, in downtown Newport, and he sees this cemetery behind locked gates. By this time, by the way, the Jewish settlement has scattered. They're no longer in Newport. This is a the consequence of the American Revolution, Newport was a thriving seaport, and after the Revolution it wasn't, and so the, the Jewish merchants and families went to other cities, so the Jewish community was no longer there. But the synagogue was still there, and it is now active again, of course. But there was this graveyard, and he sees these and he sees these inscriptions, and he, he, it was locked, and there's a caretaker, and the caretaker takes him in, and he tells him about some of the names and the inscriptions. Of course, being uh, very, um, very knowledgeable of so many different languages and dialects, Henry, Henry tells the story of, of these wandering Jewish tribes, and of course, there was so much anti-Semitism, but you won't find any of that in his poem. It's exceedingly sympathetic. He writes with great sensitivity about the migration of not only the Jewish people, but all sorts of people who were of various faiths and convictions escaping and finding haven, a haven in the new world, particularly here. So it's a remarkable poem and a remarkable, very, very, very remarkably sensitive poem and written uh, again by a very remarkable, sensitive uh, man. Well, what we'd love for you to do is just to read a passage of your choice before we close out. Okay. Well, I have chosen a little segment, which I think is really appropriate for the season that we're in. It doesn't really need much of a, of a backstory. It's just that it is 1863. 
It's during the Civil War, two weeks after, two years after the death of his wife, and he's taking care of his children. In the meantime, his oldest son, Charlie, has run away and joined the Union Army, and he's in Virginia. But Henry has also turned to, to doing the Tales of a Wayside Inn and his Dante poem. Here we go. 15,000 copies, Henry wrote in his notebook for November 25th, 1863, marking with those three words the publication of Tales of a Wayside Inn, adding that the publishers had dined with him the night, that night to celebrate. Joining Henry the next day for Thanksgiving dinner were Tom Appleton and Harriet Appleton, whose son Nathan Appleton Jr., like Charlie, was a junior officer serving on the front lines. We drank the health of all the lieutenants in the Army of the Potomac, Henry wrote, Charlie having recently returned to duty after a suffering about of camp fever, a term used for a variety of contagious illnesses endemic to the close-quartered military encampments of the period, most severely typhoid fever, which took the lives of more soldiers during the Civil War than injuries inflicted in combat. Charlie had fallen grievously ill with one of these ailments not long after receiving his commission, Word reaching Henry in Portland on June 11th, where he was visiting with his sister Anne, setting off immediately for Washington, he arrived within a day of hearing the news. Charlie was assigned to a bed in the home of a Unitarian minister, taking a hotel room for himself. Henry spent the next few weeks by Charlie's bedside, visiting occasionally with Sumner and a host of government officials eager to meet him. Yesterday, Sunday, I heard the distant cannonading mingling in with the sound of the church bells and the chanting of the choir in the church close by. He wrote on June 22nd, a paradox he would recall six months later when inspired to write Christmas bells, adapted many times in the years ahead as a Yuletide song, most famously by Johnny Marks in 1956, as I heard the bells on Christmas Day and recorded that year by Bing Crosby. The opening stanza on the song is the same as in Henry's poem, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Two stanzas typically left out of the carol speak directly to the horrors of the Civil War. Then from each black, cursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Picking up at the next stanza, the song and the poem conclude with hope. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. That was wonderful. Thank you. I love that poem. And like so many other poems that he wrote, it resonates to this day. You know, when you think of the, the building of the ship, which is from the 1840s, and he writes that, that verse of sail on, O union strong and great, brings Abraham Lincoln to tears. Franklin Roosevelt is so moved during World War II, the darkest depths of World War II, he writes it out from memory in longhand and sends it to Winston Churchill, who reads it before the House of Commons prior to the Battle of Britain. And you just, so people say, does Longfellow not resonate anymore? 
far as the power of the poet uh, mute in the 20th century and the 21st century? I don't think so, but that's just one person's opinion. And before we leave you all listeners, of course, we have to leave you with a tweet of the week. This friend from USEdGov, it is a new report alert. Our friend Patrick Wolf was tweeting about this, which is how it came to our attention. The quote is, study of public school funding and spending for fiscal year 2018 and 19 is out. Average per pupil funding continued its steady increase to $14,347 per pupil, Funding is still significantly lower for charter schools than district-run schools. And that is a National Center for Education Statistics report. Not shocking, $14,347. Now, I know we are in a moment of inflation, but that sounds like a pretty big leap from where we were even just 10 years ago. And let's not forget, folks, that those numbers are way higher in a lot of school districts across the state. And, of course, they're lower in some as well. So those inequities run deep, especially when it comes to charter schools, which often suffer from, for example, a lack of facilities funding. We should really be thinking about adjusting for greater equity in our funding formulas, folks. Just another thought to leave you with at the Thanksgiving table. And Gerard, as you know, next week, we are going to be joined by Matt Chingos of the Urban Institute. Gerard, I hope that your vegan sausage is absolutely delicious. And if you will, my friend, Please send a photo of that fried chicken. I definitely will. All right, everybody. Listen, I wish you and yours all the best. Hope you have a wonderful long weekend and eat at least lots of like vegan apple pie, I hope. Woohoo! <laughs>